Andy, here's a question. I recently started as a development director at a small nonprofit. One of our staff told me that a few months ago, one of our donors got an automated call from our telephone number saying that her credit card number had been compromised and to press one to talk to someone. Thankfully, the donor didn't press one. From what I understand, she's pretty savvy and thought it sounded fishy. It sounds like our nonprofit never did anything after this happened except to contact the donor and apologize for the situation and to thank them for letting us know. I am concerned that our agency didn't do more to handle this. In a world of spammers and hackers and scam artists, I'm wondering if you have any advice on how to handle this if your organization becomes a victim. Well, yeah. So anybody anybody with parents feels this exact same feeling, right? <laughs> Which yes. is like like the fact that my yes. mom goes on the internet, hi mom if you're listening, it, the, and and does things on the internet that involve credit cards is just terrifying. Oh, it is. Because Ugh. some of these things are so sophisticated now. I mean, this one, you know, this example where I mean, a, a telephone, you know, the telephone number that shows that's calling you has the name of some other organization in it. Like that's old school. That's been happening since we invented um, caller ID in 1980, whatever that was. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the, that's, that's a super old scam. And, you know, it's like the kind of thing where if somebody calls you and says, hi, I'm calling you from your bank and I need your password. Right. You're like, you immediately your all of the red flags go up and you're like, yeah, that's, that's fine. I'll call you back. Um, so, 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 I mean, educating your, you know, if you've got the opportunity to educate your donors that this kind of thing has happened and just to be aware and let them know that, you know, you're never going to, you know, if you'll, if you ever have a challenge with a credit card, it will be a human calling you and, you know, you'll give them a call back number to call back and that like, you know, just be, just be vigilant, let them know to be vigilant, I think is enough. Um, we had an episode a few months back where we talked to, uh, we'll post it in the show notes. We talked to N10 about specifically this activity about phishing and scams and things like that and how to protect ourselves. And there was, you know, want to go back and listen to the episode because it's a lot better than I'm about to summarize. But but the short version was you need your organization, even if you're small, kind of needs a plan in place to make sure you've got this thing. You've got a something you you know that you're protecting your donor's information, that you've got stuff properly password protected and put in a safe place, that you've got backups um, you know, all of the stuff that you need to do as an organization to make sure that you're keeping your donor information safe and your financial information safe. You got to do that anyway. In this, in this scenario though, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what else you would do other than, you know, call and apologize, which is what your organization did. I'm, I'm curious. What do you think, Stacey? Did, I, did so the uh, I, organization so miss a trick? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that communication is key in this. So it's not only sort of the front end communication, letting donors know, you know, on your website and your materials, like this is how, you know, we know that this is of concern to a lot of you these days when you hear about all of, you know, the craziness going out there. And so just know this is our procedures. This is how we would communicate with you. This is how we would get your credit card numbers. So I would, I, I think there's an opportunity to kind of build in some communications, not to create fear, but to create knowledge about your own systems as an organization and educate donors along the way about how they can expect to hear from you. I also think like on the back end of this, I would have probably done a larger message 
to donors. Um, and I, I know that some people would probably really push back and say, oh, you don't want to do that because you're going to scare everybody. But but I also think, gosh, who knows? I mean, I, I don't know the, situ- you know the the details or circumstances of this particular situation, but like it's come to our attention that X happened to one of our donors and we don't know um, we wanted to make you aware. This is as good a time as any to make you aware of our procedures to ensure your privacy, to ensure um, your information is protected. And so I think it's actually kind of an opportunity to take a bad, crappy situation and turn it into something that that shows that you take this seriously and you're given a, giving them a heads up. Um, I mean, I've seen even in the, I think, in the news over the last several months, like they're all come on, you know, we see it all the time, right? Someone says, oh, if you get a call from this organization or this, per, you know, person pretending like, you know, they're taking donations for this, like beware. And it tends to be really kind of broad-brushed and prevalent. So my concern is more like, is this is this just a one-person random thing that happened? Or is this something that's much more like your organization is being hit? And so that's why I would probably take that extra step to do that extra layer of communication, uh, just to be transparent about it. Yeah, I I think you're, I think you're exactly right. The other thing you, you're you going to want to do is internally see if you can figure out if there, there is something that where you've got a data security problem in your organization already. Because if if they're targeting your donors, I mean, in many cases, that's as easy as just getting your hands on an annual report. Um, but it sounds like somebody's done some extra steps to get some phone numbers as well, right? That's a and that's a little that's a low um, probability play if you're a scammer is to have to go through the process of finding phone numbers for people and then trying to see what organizations they've donated to. So I would be concerned that you may you may have a data security problem. Um, and then see if you can chase that one down as well, just to make sure. And Stacey, you're exactly right. This is a good, a good opportunity to say, Hey, this happened. Um, here's, here's how we'll contact you. Exactly what you said. This is, these are the procedures we've got in place. This is what would happen if that happened. And just to be on your alert because it seems to be happening. Right. Um, and you're not, you're not, it's not your fault. It's nothing you did wrong. Um, and, and your, your donors will appreciate you for pointing it out. I think. I wonder also, I, I don't know how this happens when I, I've i not had to ever do this knock on wood or heard of organizations having to do this, but I know there's an, op, uh, an option to also file a complaint with the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. And so I, I don't know how they track this and they probably are inundated, but I just wonder if that's another thing to just kind of, you know, again, to say, this is what we've done to take action against this. This is what, you know, we we continue to monitor our security and data security. Um, so just, just again, showing responsiveness and uh, commitment to taking care of your donor's information. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding. Welcome, everybody. Drum roll, please. Okay, that was sort of cheesy. That was just me banging on my computer desk. But hey, just picture a drum roll. We're just glad to have you. Welcome. It's another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I am here with 
my fabulous, brilliant co-host, Andy Schurecht. And we certainly hope you enjoy uh, these. We try to bring some of our own opinions and knowledge uh, that we have. But more importantly, we like to bring in guest experts. So ask us the questions that need us to bring in a guest expert, right? Challenge us, stump us. We make sure we bring in the guest experts and uh, just impart information that hopefully helps you and also helps answer your questions. So with that, nonprofiteverything.com is one of the many places you can find us. You can also check us out on social media. All of those uh, options are on the website and uh, look forward to having you for another episode. Thanks. As a new VP of operations, I'm running into challenges with one of our staff. One of our manager's direct reports recently came to me with negative feedback about him and then asked me to keep it confidential. This puts me in a tough position. One of our core values is confidentiality, and we believe in honoring it. I'm just wondering how to honor confidentiality while also creating a culture of transparency and accountability. Any ideas? Well, I, th- I think this puts you in a really tough position. Uh situation, as you point out. Um, I mean, what what are you going to do if you, this person's coming to you and <laughs> wants you to keep this confidential? I think I would ask, why are you coming to me? Like, may I ask what it is you're looking for me to do? And then explain my options are are limited, really, for addressing this if you don't want me to say anything to your supervisor. And I'd also empower them, probably encourage them to have that conversation directly, maybe coach them a little bit around the fact that it's not real cool that they kind of went above their direct supervisor's head to me. And and that that just, how would that kind of make them feel? And so let's talk through maybe some ways they can have a conversation with their, their manager, supervisor, or whatever about what is concerning them. Um, because it just... Otherwise, I mean, I, I I don't know how you stop a problem like this, and then you become the person that that always is the one that staff come to to compl- complain to, and that's not productive either. Yeah, I mean, this, I mean, I've, I've had situations that are very similar to this, and and honestly, I think it's a big red flag. So if if someone you supervises, if the people that they supervise, so one of your direct reports, direct reports is coming to you. They're going around this person and they're telling you something about the manager that you supervise, but then they tell you to keep it confidential. It's because they're afraid of retaliation. They think that if they find out that, you know, they know that if you yell at your direct report about this activity, that that person's going to get blowback. And so you've either got a cultural situation where that's okay. It's happened in the past. This person's um, afraid that they're going to be retaliated against. And th- and so it's your job as the manager of the manager is to, number one, reassure the <laughs> the person that's complaining that you, know, you won't be retaliated against, um, that, that that's unacceptable, and that the only way that you can address the problem is if you, you're allowed to address it. If someone comes to complain to you about something that says, you know, this is a problem, I'm coming to you because it's a problem, but please don't say anything about it or do anything about it. You're like, well, then why did you come complain to me right. in the first place? So, so the only way to solve it is if they give you the authority to be able to handle it. And, and I mean, it, it really is a, I mean, either you've got a, an employee like at the bottom of the food chain there 
who's a pain and will complain about everything and is annoying. Um, that's important information to know. Or you've got a manager that's maybe not a, the greatest manager and you need to correct that. But that's your job as their supervisor to make sure that you're correcting the manager that reports to you. Um, so so make sure you get it. Make sure you get it in writing. Make sure it goes to the employee's file, like all the HR stuff that would normally be involved in that kind of thing. And then and then see if you can get that the direct report to finally tell you like, OK, it's OK for you to do something about it. Um, that's the only way it's ever going to get solved because it's just going to recur again and again and again. And you're going to be stuck in the situation where you feel like you need to fix something, but you don't actually have enough information to fix it. Um, is you know, this is as you know, those of us that lived in the management roles for a long time, you know, we we desensitize ourselves to these things. Um, but you got to keep a running file of everything all the time because you never know when you're going to need it. Um, even if it's just in there to be in there, um, it's, it's better to have it than to not have it. And you're not hurting anybody's feelings. You're not making their job harder by documenting things that you hear or people tell you. That's just part of your responsibility as a manager is to keep track of stuff that people tell you. And I think I would also ask, I'd probably ask some questions. If the person came to me to your point, is it a retaliation issue or is it just a Con, someone who's conflict adverse issue, right? Or doesn't even know, may, who knows, right? I, I don't know the story of these people's backgrounds, but a lot of people aren't trained how to have conversations with and manage up or give feedback to their manager. Like people aren't taught that. So that's why I think it's kind of, it could be retaliation. And so maybe you can ask some questions to kind of get a sense of, of what it is that, that, had them, you know, brought them to you instead of talking directly to the person and maybe even helping them think through that a little bit. But then, yeah, handling it. I mean, again, I I would say ditto and echo everything you said, Andy. I guess my only caveat is just I'm thinking of how many people who are in the workforce, uh, particularly ones that are newer in the workforce, don't even know how to have a conversation with their boss about hey, like, I just, you know, this is how I'm I'm feeling or this is just not, my morale has been kind of down and I just, I wanted to share it to see if we can come up with a solution together or whatever. Like, the, it, people don't even know necessarily how to start that conversation. So I think once you ask some more exploratory conversation or questions about this, then you can figure out is, yeah, is it retaliation? And if it's not retaliation, then maybe there's just some coaching that, that you can provide to this person to help empower them so they can deal with these issues directly. And then, of course, knowing that if it's something super serious or they feel like they're going to be retaliated against or um, fill in the blank, they can come to, you know, if, if they feel like there's no other option, they can come to you. But, but I just think really trying to give people the skills to work through some of this on their own is the best gift you can do in a situation like this. And yeah, I agree. Maybe, yeah. I mean, like, maybe that's naive, though, Andy. Like, maybe I'm totally, <laughs> like, maybe it is a retaliation issue, right? Which is why you kind of have to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I, I and And also, you know, if you're the manager of managers, like, remember that many people that are in management positions, this is the first one they've ever had. They may be terrible at it. <laughs> it's not something you ever get trained on. Nope. They don't just like, congratulations, you're a new manager. Here's... <laughs> Here's how you manage people. Some people are just terrible at it, right? <laughs> and, and just don't get 
like how you know especially you know it depends on the situation like god forbid you've raised a manager out of a group of peers and so now that dynamic is completely different i mean there're just so many other ways it can go wrong um so so maybe you just need to train your managers on like hey by the way don't call your employees honey because somebody's going to drive a forklift through your car right <laughs> just like the, there are things you can and can't do and maybe those people need to be trained on it Our nonprofit needs to fill the executive director position for the first time in more than 10 years. Some of our board members are insisting that we engage a search firm, but others don't think it's worth the expense. Is there a size or budget threshold over which an executive search firm makes sense? This is such a great question because Isn't I it? Yeah, like <laughs> there's so many organizations right that I feel like are looking for EDs right now. I don't know if you feel that way, Andy, and I'm like, mm-hmm. gosh, this is like the the battle that goes on in the boardroom, do we hire one or not? Um, I, so I want to take this from from a couple of different perspectives. One, um, years ago, and I got smart and never did it after doing a few stints doing this, I had done some um, executive search kind of work and for some nonprofits. And I will say, A, it's a ton of work. And so that is one of the reasons that I think boards most, like the question becomes, you know, rather than a size or budget, there's there's a piece of that, right, that comes into the equation. Like, do you have the money available to pay for a search firm? Um, but it's also like, okay, what can the board truly commit to? Because if you think about doing a search the right way, there are so many different pieces to it uh, that are that are important from everything from the job description to where you place the ad to how you get the word out about it to the interview questions, to the interview process, right? On and on and on. So not to mention managing the search committee (laughs) so that it doesn't go rogue and crazy in the process. So so it's a lot of work. So I think boards who want to take this on themselves just need to be committed and make sure that they realize um, this is their first impression with a potential leader of the organization. They need to make a good one. And that means they need to be really thoughtful and thorough in this process, communicate throughout and and all that jazz. Now, the other thing is is so there's kind of two types of search firms that are that are out there. There's probably more, but at least the ones that I've found in my research are there's those that are like retained search firms and those are the ones that really they provide that kind of whole range of of services as one package, right? So you know, helping with the search process, managing the search committee, doing reference checks, all of that stuff, right? So this retained search firm does that. And for that type of search, I mean, it can vary. Fees very much, of course, vary depending on the size of the firm. Is it is it an independent consultant? Is it an entire large company search firm, right? So all of that will influence it. But in general, you know, sort of the rule of thumb is that one-third of the position salary plus expenses related to the search is their fee. But they only get paid that, right? I mean, they get paid that for doing those services. So whether you're happy with the candidate or not, or you find someone or not, let's say they go through it and there's just nobody viable, you still have to pay for it. So that I think scares boards a little bit. Um, And yet you've still had the expertise to help you through it. And you've got a lot of that kind of those foundational pieces to help you. Then there's search firms that work more on a contingency basis. And, you know, 
they're basically, you know, they're less of a consultative like figure, like they provide, you know, it's less about the consultation and helping with all those pieces. And it's more about like, let's use my pool of candidates and contacts to try to get your position filled. So it's very much kind of those who know people or have a large network for how they've built their firm, that they have a lot of viable candidates. And in in for kind of that type of search firms, so these contingency firms, you only pay the search firm if the firm actually finds you a candidate, like a successful candidate. So so that can feel at least a little bit better to boards, but it still begs the question, right? What about all the other work <laughs> that has to be done in the search process? And so, so I go back to saying, you have to ask yourself, what do we have the bandwidth for? What are we committed to do? What do we have the expertise to do? So we don't like do something. I'm sure our HR experts out there and, and HR attorneys are listening to this going, yeah, and you can really screw it up if you don't do the process right. So it's a worthwhile investment. So I don't know. I just think you really got to kind of look in the mirror and see what kind of expertise you have as an organization, what budget you have, and then decide accordingly. It's less about the size of your organization and more about these sort of these kinds of things in my, in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, So having, having been on both sides of the, the search equation before um, I can wholeheartedly recommend that you go with a retained search, especially for nonprofits. So contingency searches are, they're fine if you're just trying to fill a director of marketing position for some random for-profit, because those, those activities are so common and there's so many people, the pool of applicants is so gigantic that you really just want somebody to help filter for you. For, for nonprofits, we've, I mean, as we've said infinity times, like this is business on hard mode. There's a very specific basket of like responsibilities and expertise that, that a nonprofit executive is going to come with that you just can't, you know, you're not going to just post it on LinkedIn and hope for the best. You need somebody that's, that's got a pool of candidates that is trusted in the space and, and has done this before. Um, as a, I'll tell you, you know, when, when recruiters call me for stuff and my answer is like almost always, no, I'm good. Thanks. But when they call me, my first question to them as a potential candidate is, have you been retained for this search or are you doing it on contingency? And it comes across as incredibly rude, but I won't work for a contingency. I won't work for a contingency recruiter because that tells me that I'm not really being vetted properly. That tells me that it's just wasting everybody's time for me, knowing that the nonprofit space is so much harder to fill positions in. Um, so, you know, I would say 100% of the time, go for retained search. They're going to give you, like Stacy said, they're going to give you all of those additional levels of expertise. They're going to, because they're, and, and there is, there is some um, control of the risk as well, depending on what retained search firm you work with. Like they, they might not guarantee that you're going to pick a candidate because they have no control over you. They don't know how picky you're going to be about what person's going to take that role, um, especially boards. You know, sometimes boards just, you know, can't, can't find somebody that they think has the, the level of expertise for the paltry amount of money that they want to pay. So they're never going to guarantee that you're going to get a candidate, but they can guarantee in some cases that if you do select a candidate, that candidate's going to stay for six months or a year. Um, that can be part of the contract. There's nothing that prevents a retained search firm from providing some sort of assurance that you're not going to be out and you know left in the lurch and this person's not going to be qualified based on what they said because they're putting their expertise on the line there as well. Um, the So 
you know, I think it's worth it for these hard to fill positions. And there are a whole bunch of retained search firms out there that specialize in nonprofits from program people. There's a few that do just development people, which is, I mean, as you know, that's a really hard position to fill sometimes. And one that does executive directors and they have a, a they have wide variety of networks that they can reach out to. They talk to people and they say, if you're not interested, is there anybody else you think of that might be interested and widen their networks that way? So you're going to get a much better pool of candidates. Um, the, the only downside with search firms, I think, retained search or contingency search in general, is that they're going to be looking a lot of times nationally for for candidates, not just locally. And so one of the things that we know is that like 85% of nonprofits, actually probably higher than that, um, nonprofits are are local organizations. They fundraise locally. They have local board members. They're active in the local community. It's not a national thing. And so when you bring somebody in from Pittsburgh and they don't know your community at all, that's going to be part of the learning curve. And that's what you're, you're going to end up with a wider variety of candidates that are not local. Um, but again, with retained search, you can tell the candidate, yeah, we would love to have somebody that's familiar with our community and they'll, you know, they'll focus their candidate pool on that for you too. Um, but it really does take a lot of the risk out of the equation. If you can afford it, it can't hurt to call and ask and say, Hey, we want to do this. What's it going to run me and see if you're, you know, if your board thinks that, um, putting all that responsibility onto somebody else because the board doesn't want to do it anyway, um, is a good financial investment. It's really just, it's, it's as much a risk management tool, I think, to have that retained search firm as it is just really wanting to make sure you you do the, you know, you have a process that actually entices and attracts the right candidates and, and candidates that are going to really um, cast the vision for your future as an organization because it's, you know, it's going to be the most important hire <laughs> in, in many cases that you make as an, you know, hiring an executive director. And so they will more than cover over time the cost <laughs> that you pay up front. So I, th- I think it's an investment in finding the right person. And, and I just, I cringe because I know in my experiences, I've seen boards where they have the best intentions. They may even have an HR expert on their board and they think that they're, you know, they can do this process and then they drag their feet and they lose a good candidate or they don't handle something properly and candidates have a bad taste in their mouths. And it's just, uh, it's just that, that piece really makes me nervous when you hand it over to a board to do and no disrespect. If you've done it as a board, kudos to you, but but it is a huge commitment and make sure you've got someone at least guiding you with the expertise on your board or even someone that's a volunteer that's willing to help make sure you're you're staying within, you know, the parameters you need to legally and given labor law and given, you know, just how how you ask questions. How do you make sure you have a process that doesn't discriminate? I mean, the list goes on. So anyways, obviously, <laughs> Andy and I have some strong feelings about this one. Well, that's it. You've come to the end of another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Thanks for joining us today. We appreciate that you've taken the time to listen to these things. We appreciate you for uh, sending us your questions, for getting us to drag guest experts in. If you've got some ideas on um, a guest expert that you want to talk to, let us know and we will reach out to them and see if we can get them on and 
I don't know, maybe make up a question to have an excuse to talk to cool people. We might, we're not below, we're not below that, right? Hey, <laughs> don't, not above share that, our, don't share our trade secrets, Andy. <laughs> um, but yeah, send us some more questions and we'll get back to you in a couple of weeks with some answers. Thank you.